Hey everyone, you are listening to the third episode in the Mesh Point series here on the Ride In NFL DFS podcast, a one-on-one interview-style podcast in which I pick the brains of some of the best fantasy personalities in the industry about their craft. We also talk everyday life, food, fitness, travel, and more towards the end of the show. In this episode, I speak with Tyler Beaker of Fantasy Guru and Elite Fantasy about best ball, NFL draft prop bets, cheesesteaks, and Brussels sprouts. I encourage you to check out all the previous interviews as they've been insightful, educational, and at times pretty funny. I hope everyone is staying healthy and these episodes can occupy your mind for a little bit of time while we wait out this pandemic. Now let's get into the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Ride In NFL DFS podcast, and more specifically, episode three of The Mesh Point, a one-on-one interview series with fantasy football personalities from around the industry, fantasy strategy and advice with a little bit of everyday life conversation. Today, I have with me Tyler Beaker of Fantasy Guru and Elite Fantasy. Tyler, what's up, buddy? What is going on, Pat? Thanks for having me. Been a longtime listener of this podcast. Love the quick-hitting element to it. Uh, just trying to stay sane like everyone else right now during this time of social distancing and isolation. Wine's helping. Uh, keeping busy with some best ball drafts, dynasty startups, and actually diving into some esports now. Uh, how are you trying to awesome. keep sane yeah. during all this? It's. I mean, listen, I've been playing, and I've mentioned this on a few of the, the first episodes, I've been playing virtual blackjack. I actually just registered for the Roto Grinders poker tournament tonight, even though I haven't played poker in years. I'm just like, the fix is... Uh, really getting to me. I, uh, it's it's hard. It's a hard itch to scratch with no uh, sports going on. It really is. It's tough to try to like keep yourself occupied and not go uh-huh. too crazy here. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, I have uh, you know a kid in the mix, so she kind of takes up most of my time. Um, but and this podcast is is being broadcast from the old basement, not from a vehicle. So uh, a little bit different. You won't hear any blinkers. You won't hear any uh, horns or anything like that like the normal NFL DFS uh, in-season podcast. But let's get into what I want to talk to Tyler about is um, first best ball, because he did a pretty comprehensive piece on win rates and what goes into building winning best ball teams. So Tyler, I'll give you the floor a little bit here to discuss that piece that you put out uh, about some of the trends that you saw in winning best ball teams for 2019. Uh, thanks. Yeah, to start, I've been doing best balls for several years now, five, I think, routinely logging about 100 plus over the course of the offseason. Generally play that many for two reasons. One, it helps me like keep a continuous pulse on ADP as the offseason progresses. Like by the time August hits, I know ADP, but like the back of my hand. And I also use it as like a source to gain a little extra cheddar on the side. Like we get, we're doing this for a reason here, trying to haul in some extra money. Uh, but basically, what that uh, article that you're referencing had referenced was a lot of the different win rates through the best ball site. Um, now that draft has over, uh, FanDuel has acquired them. They're no longer a, a viable place to play best ball at this time. Uh, best ball 10 is currently where I'm putting most of my equity. And I kind of just wanted to review the overall win rates in terms of um, roster construction, because it's one of the most under talked about parts of the best ball format is yeah. roster constructing and nailing those like 
how many quarterbacks do you have? How many running backs, receivers? And um, if we look solely at like 2019, the top three win rates in terms of the breakdown were two quarterbacks, five running backs, eight receivers, three tight ends, and two defenses. And then if we look at that had a 12.1% win rate. The next closest at 12.0% had a two, five, eight, two, and three. So those are the two that I primarily try to orchestrate depending on when I'm able to get that first tight end. I think that's a big difference maker in this format and not enough people actually go that route where you try to invest in either the difference makers of Kelsey or Kittle or Ertz in the first few rounds, like rounds two through four. And then you only take one more tight end afterwards. If you miss on the that cohort, I think it's best to try to accumulate three tight ends and generally wait until like the tight end uh, eight through nine and then tight end 15 through 18, like kind of three in that range where you're trying to get three guys that can rotate. But if you have like a difference maker at the position, I just think it's such a weekly edge that not many people right. pursue. Um, and so, it also clears up a roster space too. I was just going to ask you that. So if you are pushed back on tight end and you have to take three um, because you don't feel confident in, in, in only having two, where does that, or where would that most likely, what position would that take away from? Uh, I think mostly go back to the defense. I think leaving with three defenses is such a huge edge that other, that uh, other people do not normally take advantage of. Um, it's it's the onesie positions I think are where this game is won and lost to be honest. And if you can figure out how to accurately pick between your quarterbacks, tight ends, and defenses, I think you have a big edge because most of the time most people are looking at five running backs and seven to eight or seven to nine wide receivers. And if you can pinpoint those onesie positions accurately, I think you're setting yourself up to profit pretty well. So um, uh, the two highest win rates only had two quarterbacks. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, the third so, highest one did have three quarterbacks, though. I'm kind of burying that. And that was a three, five, seven, two, three format. Okay. So let me ask you this. At what point are you, you know, pulling the trigger on a quarterback? I feel like if you're only taking two, it lends me to believe that a lot of people that only ended up with two had someone relatively safe uh, as their QB one. Right. And I think the ch- the key here is not to chase last year's outliers. We don't want to get the QB one from last year where he's currently going now, probably rounds two or three. You're looking instead for the next version of Patrick Mahomes, the next version of Lamar Jackson. Right. And so like, like you said, you kind of want a secure QB one in that aspect where possibly starting in round six plus is where you could start looking. Um, and then you want to try to get two quarterbacks. I at least try to between round six and round 12. I feel like that's a good range of when starting quarterbacks are picked that are actually going to produce usable ceilings and weeks that you want to use versus trying to string together a lot of back-end QB3s. Got you. Now, so one of the things that I always struggle with is how to adjust value of players from redraft to best ball. Obviously, you're not setting a lineup in in best ball as you would in redraft. Um, Is there... do you have a differing value of certain types of players from redraft to best ball? I don't change the values a ton here, to be honest. I mainly just use it for like tier tiebreakers. If there's a spike player that I value similarly to a consistent player, I'll generally opt for the spike player in this format. Like at current ADP right now, uh, wide receiver 24 plus range. I've taken Robert Woods, Michael Gallup, and T.Y. Hilton over Jarvis Landry. 
I love Landry as a receiver. Just think that in this format, you'd be more apt to take the guys with the spike weeks just based on you're trying to get the most amount of points between week one and week 16. And that's how you do it is by capitalizing on the spike weeks. Yeah. And that's nothing said though. Like having a good balance of receivers is also key. And that's one of the things that, I mean, if someone's listening that isn't a hundred percent sure what best ball is, obviously uh, it is a, a draft only optimal lineup is set each week based on your highest scoring players and, you know, the, the roster starting requirements. And usually uh, most of the time you're, you're shooting for first. There are like 50, 50 leagues where it's like a double up in, in DFS where half the league is paid out. But most of the time, most leagues that you're going to be in, um, you know, first is the huge chunk of the winnings. And then second is sometimes, uh, you know, a smaller percentage or sometimes second is just your money back or, or a ticket into next year's um, best ball uh, tournaments. So as you mentioned with Robert Woods and you, you like Robert Woods and Landry over a guy or over a guy like uh, Jarvis Landry, how do you create uh, the ceiling of these teams? Are you stacking quarterbacks and running backs? Are you stacking um, multiple, excuse me, quarterbacks, wide receivers? Are you stacking multiple pieces from certain high scoring teams? Uh, how are you creating a ceiling to get to that first place spot? Uh, a lot of it comes down to roster construction. So I'll answer this kind of in like two different ways. Uh, it's kind of what I've already mentioned though, as in terms of like getting the elite tight end, I think that's just such a difference maker and it's proven to be uh, a path that leads to higher win rates. I'll also try to make sure I grab three defenses as possible, just because defensive scoring, it's so random in terms of trying to get touchdowns and touchdowns are the big difference makers here when trying to string together units that uh, score high, highly week to week. So getting three dart throws at the DST position is a plus EV move to me. And I always usually wait until the final four rounds to select them, never really chasing last year's highest producers. Cause you'll see some people trying to grab them in rounds like, 10, 11, 12, just to try to fill up their rosters. And that's just a little bit of reaching. But in terms of like trying to get a ceiling through the players specifically, I like to mix and match the contrasting styles of plays. Like we don't want all volatile receivers because if they all miss on the same week, we're going to be working from behind. And it's kind of tough when your highest scoring receiver scores five or six points. So like, I think it's important to keep in mind that the key goal is to total the most fantasy points by the end of week 16. And you can do that best by mixing and matching high floors and high ceilings. So does that lend you to not worry about bye weeks uh, since it's not a win-loss record type league? Or are, are you concerned with, uh, to a point, if you have too many players on the same bye? No, I'm not worried about bye weeks. I think the only way you want, only time you want to worry about that is when you're choosing two at one of the onesie positions and you don't want to be stuck with two quarterbacks in the same bye week. But other than that, I'm not really letting it impact any of my decision-making. Right. I mean, it makes sense. You're not uh, trying to have the best uh, one loss record. You are trying to pile up the most overall points. And hopefully if uh, health aside, all of your players will be playing 16 games in the end. So uh, I actually just pulled up, uh, I had a best ball, on draft two years ago a team go real deep in the best ball championship and i wanted to pull it up and see exactly if it matches some of your criteria and it does i had obviously patrick mahomes on that team <clears throat> that was pivotal uh to the success there but i also had three tight ends one being george kittle um and i actually and you know he wasn't he was a sleeper two years ago but he wasn't um thought of as one of the best tight ends he was going like 10 between 10 and 15 and I also had Kelsey on that team. So 
uh, Mahomes stacked with Kelsey. And then, you know, to have two tight ends, I pretty much probably won the tight end spot every single week uh, across 16 weeks there. I didn't end up winning the entire uh, championship, but it, it did go pretty deep and it does match up three defenses, does match up pretty well with uh, your criteria there. Now, uh, another, another um, criteria that I want to talk about uh, kind of like bye weeks is are we avoiding injury prone players like someone like Will Fuller comes to mind he has like three or four weeks uh, a year where he puts up wide receiver one number sometimes like is a standard deviation above the number two receiver like we saw last year he went for like 57 fantasy points um, but then there's weeks where he's not even on the field because he he does have like the soft tissue and I know that's a whole different uh, argument are players injury prone etc but he does often you know come up lame and and miss a few games every year is that something that you take into account yeah this was a really good question I, I think it's wise to avoid them in the early rounds where you need your hammers to go off and to continuously produce but after round 10 plus i think that's when you are a lot more willing to take those dart throws and it's less of a concern uh, an injury prone quote-unquote player that i'm looking at this year is aj green wide receiver 31 I think the addition of Joe Burrow um, could help Green get back to putting up those weekly wide receiver one weeks. I mean, when he's there, he's producing top end results. Mm -hmm. He's consistently among the top receivers in yards per route run. Over the last five years, he's been a wide receiver one, a top 12 wide receiver, 31% of the time. That's a race that rivals Keenan Allen, Tyreek Hill, Julian Edelman during that same stretch. Like the guy produces, he's just coming at a massive discount. Wide receiver 31 right now. Uh, he's probably one of the few injury-prone players I'd be looking looking at right now. He is. I have like this affinity for uh, AJ Green. I drafted him in my in my home league. It's a three keeper league, and there's no limit on how long you can keep a player. So like the same person had, you know, of my buddies had Adrian Peterson his entire career. I oh, wow. yeah, I have I have had AJ Green his entire career. And so he's just a player that I always have had an affinity for love, you know, love hate relationship. Cause a lot of times, you know, he's burned me. Um, but I love that pick. I think with Joe, Joe Burrow, you know, at the helm, the Bengals, man, they went out and got a lot of talent on defense. I could see them, uh, you know, producing seven, eight wins this year in, in Joe Burrow's rookie year for sure. Yeah. It's a totally different secondary. They picked up, I think three or four different corners in free agency. It's totally revamped. Plus they have William Jackson returning. Uh, I think we're no longer going to be picking on them as frequently as we had been. Yeah. Uh, but yeah think... we're, they're also getting back their first round offensive lineman from last year. There's a lot of reasons to like Cincinnati. Yeah. The, the fake Mike Thomas, they signed off of the Rams practice squad. So they're, <laughs> they're ready to go. Um, actually, I believe uh, probably worst take of all time for me uh, a few years ago when Mike Thomas, not Michael Thomas, Mike Thomas was coming out. I said that he had the chance, or I, maybe I even said that he was going to be better than Michael Thomas. So yeah, we'll, that was we'll, a very popular opinion on Twitter. We'll scratch. <laughs> you are not alone. <laughs> yeah. We'll scratch that take from the record. So a lot of times when you hear about someone like yourself who has a hundred best ball teams for me, you know, I'm, I, I like reach the max, like 30 to 40, because I just do it as, you know, like when people say who wants to mock draft, I don't mock draft. I just do best balls. You know, if I, if I want to practice drafting, I'll just do, you know, a 10 or $20 best ball portfolios, uh, you know, similar to a stock portfolio, uh, you have a list of players that you have. Are you diversifying that, that player, or are you trusting your evaluations? Cause for me, I just draft 
who I feel like I think is the best player at that spot. Like I don't look at a spreadsheet <clears throat> and this is probably me just not being as advanced in, in best ball uh, or, or paying as much attention to it. I'm not going to look at a spreadsheet and say, well, I have, you know, 80% of uh, George Kittle. Uh, I need to, you know, diversify that and maybe take a wide receiver at the two, three turn uh, or, you know, get a little bit more Michael Thomas, get a little bit more Aaron Jones. I have zero Aaron Jones. Let me get Aaron Jones. I basically just take who I value at that certain point. Are you, are you like that? Are you trusting your evaluations or are you trying to strike a balance uh, on these teams? Yeah, I think it totally comes down to the volume that you play. If you're just going to do like 10 to 15 of these and they're just kind of fun. I absolutely agree that you can just kind of, pick whoever you want and try to get the best results from there. But if you're doing like a hundred plus, it's almost like mitigating risk in terms right. of keeping track of how many, how much exposure you have to each individual player. Uh, shout out to Mike beers over at Rotoviz. He has some incredible tools that can help you track your exposure, whether you're playing on best ball tens, FFPC fan tracks. Uh, I just use my Rotoviz subscription there now. And that, that pays for itself just with Mike beers tools there, uh, being able to keep track of it. Um, but in terms so of like trying to keep track of everybody, like, in the first round, I'll, I'll say anecdotally last year, like I was incredibly high on Christian McCaffrey. Like okay. I had him RB1 and most ADP places had him RB3 or RB4 with Alvin Kamara, I believe. So we were seeing a lot of times where he'd slip to RB4. And if I had the 102 in a draft, I'd reach and take McCaffrey. If I had the 103, I'd reach and take him. 101, I was kind of going 50-50 there with him and, excuse me, I believe it was Saquon. Um so I was kind of using those tools helped me realize how much extra I was taking CMC and I backed off just in case of injury. Like that's the biggest thing you're worried about is a, a season end, ending injury in week one and you have 80 plus percent of a certain player. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so let me ask kind of, you on the back end of that, like for instance, last year I just pulled up my, my teams and I see that someone like, Darren Waller, um, I was very high on, and he was always almost my my second or third tight end, like on almost every single team, and that ended up panning out for me. Um, so, if someone with that little capital is is in your uh, player pool a lot, is it less risky than someone like CMC who's going to be your first pick? Yeah, absolutely. I think like once you get in the double digit rounds, you can be a lot more apt to getting players with 50 plus percent exposure just because these are guys you have like conviction in. Like you believed Waller was going to take that next step forward. There's a huge vacancy with Jerry Cook leaving. Uh, a lot of targets to be gobbled up. Darren Waller took more advantage of it than most of us had assumed he would. Uh, so that was a fantastic pick. And I'll be honest, I recycle a lot of my last few round picks uh draft after draft where if there's like a certain like group of like three or four wide receivers i love to get in the final few rounds i'll kind of recycle them and i have no problem having 50 plus percent exposure on those guys yeah i'll give you a positive and a negative for me last year i, I believe i even like screenshotted the two players as my last pick in like probably 10 drafts uh one was chris conley who had a decent season after some of the injuries Mm -hmm. And then uh, Paul Richardson and I had them both on a ton of teams. It was kind of like, I just was just picking the two of them as my last two as my like seventh and eighth receiver in every draft and, you know, worked out one way, didn't uh, the other. Yeah. Conley's one of my guys this year. Nice. <laughs> I'll be I honest. Mean, he's one of the last few I'm taking every round. Awesome. So let's transition into the NFL draft because along with the best ball, 
you have done some, you know, player profiles on the Fantasy Guru site. And one of the things that I, I want to pick your brain in um, is some of these players. And obviously the NFL draft's coming up. It is one of the, the few things that we can, can gamble on. And I want you to discuss three of the players that you talked about. And you don't have to give away all the secret sauce in those articles, but just highlight um, the first one, Jerry Judy. Yeah, he's an exciting player. Uh, he's an elite route runner, fantastic at creating separation with his cuts and breaks. His release off the line of scrimmage is another big plus in his game. Like, these are three strong traits that I think should translate really well to him for the NFL. The one weaknesses, I mean, it's really hard to find any kind of weaknesses for Judy, but in, if we're trying to list something there, I think it'd be lack of number of contested catches. But a lot of that was due to him running out of the slot where he had a step on the receiver, on the defender, and rarely had those opportunities come up. He did have a few drops due to concentration errors, but like I think that's an easy cleanup. And I'll be honest, I never grade drops as a high negative. Like I think that just means the guy's seeing more targets than his other peers. So I think that, that kind of like over uh, it kind of like nixes the drop aspect to me. I just think Judy's like a rock solid prospect, though. He should go really early in both the NFL draft and dynasty drafts to me. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, he, I feel like he's the can't miss, um, like the most polished, obviously. So. His current line uh, on most books is 12 and a half. And, you know, obviously if you're taking the under, you think he's going to be picked between one and 12. If you're taking the over, you think he's going to be picked 13th or later. Um, do you have a lean there? Yeah, I'm going to go with the under here. We have the Jets at pick number 11 and we have the Raiders at number 12. Both those guys, I think, have really strong shots at picking a receiver. I would, I would like preface this by saying I'd only bet a half unit here, depending on what kind of wagers you do. Just because I feel like there's a real strong chance that Henry Ruggs has the ability to climb up here and replace either Judy or CD Lamb yeah, and mess this prop fun. bet up. Like it just takes one speed crazy general manager to screw this up. Yeah. And I think Mayock might be, you know, he's, I've seen, I've been researching and like, you know, you always hear like leaked stuff from, from different scouts and, and different people that feel like they're in the know. And I heard, I've seen that a lot of people have CD Lamb as their number one receiver, which, um, you know, competition in the Big 12 a lot worse than than what Jerry Judy has has seen. And I feel like, um, you know, Judy's the safest for sure. And I, but I'm with you 100%. I would go under because of the Jets and the Raiders need there. I think one of them takes a receiver, and I think they would be silly not to take Judy. So the other receiver is Jalen Rieger. He's a guy that I loved watching at, at TCU, um, kind of disappeared at times. Um, but what did you see uh, on tape for him with far as strengths and weaknesses? Early breakout age is a huge thing for him. He broke out at TCU at 18.7 years old. That's a 95th percentile. And that's usually a terrific indicator of future NFL success. He consistently created separation. He was a long jump athlete in high school posted 98th and 99th percentile results in both the vertical and broad jumps at the NFL combine. And I think his elite burst and explosiveness will be like a trump card for him in the NFL. And another strength was uh, his special teams work. He thrived on punt returns, another indicator of future success. I think we're going to see playmakers. I'm sorry. I think we're going to see offensive coordinators try to use him as a playmaker and try to manufacture touches for him just because he's that good with the ball in his hands. And so, in terms of weaknesses, oh, yeah, the, the biggest thing... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. What I was going to say is um, just before I forget, I'm someone who watches college football all day and all night and then watches pro. 
football all day and all night. And I, I oftentimes I, I don't really mesh the two. I don't have the, uh, I don't watch film. Um, and, you know, I basically go off of what everyone else is saying, right? Like Judy's a polished route runner. He's, um, you know, your typical wide receiver one, et cetera. Uh, for Rieger, it seems as though he was, um, you know, he disappeared in some games, but then you, when you mentioned the breakout age, what I wanted to ask you was what the hell is that? I see that all over Twitter, you know, early breakout age. What does it, what, what does that even mean? Like what constitutes his, how do you know that his, he broke out at age 18.7, like when he gets on the field or, you know, like uh, what does that even mean? Uh, usually it's a mix of like his productivity and opportunity and efficiency at his age uh, when he's producing those numbers. And that was during his, um, Hold on, let me pull up. He said 18.7. Yeah, 18.7. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, so he did that at a very young age. Um, okay. See, I just I always see it all over Twitter. Like he he was an early breakout. This, and I never I I, I assumed it, it meant that, but I didn't know if there was like a specific metric that everyone was looking at to consider it a breakout. But it, just overall production and opportunity. Yeah, it's basically having a massive market share of the yardage, touchdowns, and just capitalizing all that into one number got him so how about his his prop right now is round one i think i may have wrote written this wrote this down backwards uh maybe not though i have round one minus 170 and round not round one or like uh, obviously round two or later as plus 130 do you think he's a first round receiver or is this class just too stacked for him to make it into the first round uh i think it's gonna be really tough here just because there's a lot of receivers. Um, I I took the round one at minus 170, but I would try to shop around that line just because I think you could get better odds there because he's, he's really been hit or miss there on that round wine bubble. And if you can find the right spot with better odds, I'd go for it. I could see a couple landing spots for him, like the Eagles at 21, the Vikings at 22. Maybe even the Packers at thirty. Like, there's plenty of spots that could use additional help at receiver in the late twenties uh, that that could end up having Rager slide in the end of first round. Okay, so I think that might be one that I shy away from, um, despite the fact that you know, being a guy that I've watched a lot of, and you know, uh, I feel like he's been he's been around forever. Um, you know, a lot of times I like to to pull the trigger and take a prop bet on on guys that I'm familiar with, but. Uh, that one seems I, I tried to aggregate mock drafts and see where they have them going. And it's kind of split uh, based mm-hmm. on, based on where all the mocks have them going too. So that might be a tough one to, 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 pull, to pull the trigger on. Okay. A running back from Wisconsin. Uh, I mean, listen, this place is just a breeding ground for running backs. Melvin Gordon, Monty Ball, PJ Hill, Corey Clement, uh, James White. They are just cranking out running backs, maybe a product of their system and their offensive line. Who knows? But Jonathan Taylor, he uh, just, you know, 300 yards and five touchdowns. It was like, seemed like a, an everyday occurrence, even though that's a bit of an exaggeration. What are, where, where do you see him going? What strengths, what weaknesses do you think he can be the next big RB1? Absolutely. I mean, this guy's a 99th percentile speed score, ran a 439 at 226 pounds. Posted upper end, missed tackles, four straights, and yards after contact. Those are two traits that translate well to the NFL and two that I kind of prioritize. David Montgomery was another forced missed tackle savant, but 
unlike Montgomery, Taylor has the ability to force the missed tackle and the speed afterwards to take advantage of it. So I think this guy is going to do really well at the NFL. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he ends up in some kind of committee to start. He's not getting anywhere near the type of buzz that other type of top end running back prospects have gotten like Barkley or Zeke or any, anybody like in the top five, like that's, he's nowhere sniffing that conversation. In fact, he's not even being talked about in the round one possibility. Um, the odds for it round, not round one minus three twenty five indicate that. And that's the yeah. bet I'm going to go with here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, any, time, any type of weaknesses though. I mean, it's just his receiving game where it's just a work in progress that we haven't seen yet. That doesn't mean he can't do it. I just think it's something we haven't seen. Yeah. I was just going to say like James white is basically a receiving back in the NFL and you know, Wisconsin just doesn't utilize their, their running backs a ton in the passing game. And I think that, you know, the skill set might be there, even though he may not have flashed it at college. Um, so yeah, he's probably not going to be taken in round one, obviously running backs being devalued. A lot of them first contract is all that they really are going to get, uh, of much significance. And, you know, aside from Gettleman going Barkley, we really haven't seen much in the way of, you know, hype in, uh, running backs in the first few picks or so. So, uh, it's a tough one to lay 325, but it's almost, you know, almost a certainty. But I think I'd stay away just just because that's a lot to lay and you never know what can happen. Somebody comes up into that last pick or the second to last pick if they really like him. But pretty safe bet that he will not hear his name called on Thursday. Okay, so three uh, or actually two props that I want to um, get your opinion on. And then I'm going to have you give me your favorite prop. Uh, hopefully we already didn't discuss it. So round one, the over-under on wide receivers taken, and we kind of mentioned this when we talked about Judy and, R- and Rager, is there are a ton of talented wide receivers. Five and a half is the over-under on the number of wide receivers taken. So you win the bet if you take the over and six wide receivers are taken. You lose, uh, you win the bet if, you take the under and five or less wide receivers are taken. What's ID on there? I'm going to take the over here. I think we have three locks that go in round one for sure. And Judy, Lamb, and Ruggs. Uh, the next two that I think are very likely to go are going to be Justin Jefferson and Jalen Rager. I think those guys could go in the 20s. They're not for sure locks, but I think they'll most likely go. And I mean, like I said earlier, there are plenty of teams in the 20s that could use that wide receiver help. Mm-hmm. Denzel Mims, Brandon Ayuk, they also have round, round one potential. And then we kind of have another tier of guys like Chenault, Higgins, Hamler. Uh, I, I think those guys are most likely going to be day two kind of guys. I'm going to take the over here, but I'll be honest, I think this line is perfect at 5.5. And that's one of the things that I, I was kind of hinting at when I say that I watch college football all day long on Saturday, college football or pro football all day long on Sunday, but I just don't see where the the players' talents cross over and how they're graded out. Man, I thought LaVisius Chenault was going to be the like a top 10 pick two years ago when he was absolutely flashing at Colorado. And then now he's not, I mean, he's in the conversation, but you know, he's probably going to be a day two pick. And that's just, you know, something where I don't delve into it enough to know. And it's funny when I see all the evaluations come out, right. I assumed Judy was going to be the number one pick. I assumed CD lamb was going to be up there, but I, I would put LaVisca Chenault for me. And I'm sure he has, you know, red flags that I don't know about from just watching, uh, you know, the, the sideline angle on Saturdays. 
I would put him over Rieger. I would put him over. I don't know if he's a if he's if he's rated out higher than Chase Claypool, but I would put him over Claypool and, and a couple of those guys that you mentioned there too as well. Yeah, I mean, I did a startup draft. I think it was end of January, beginning of February. Like, I my, it must have been February, right after the Super Bowl, and we were included rookies here, and I was eager to pick one of either Rieger or Chenault. And I spent maybe a full day trying to decide which one to get there. I ended up going with Rager just because of his uh, burst and upside. But I, I agree with you. I thought Chanel had such a great profile prior to injury. Um, he's a guy that I think will make a splash and probably end up being a really good dynasty pick just for a team that won't cost you an early first round pick. Right. So how about give me your uh, – and before before we, uh, we got on here, I, I asked Tyler to um, head over to uh, one of the – bookie sites and and take a look at the props and give me his top choice uh which one did you come up with so uh, we did kind of do it already in terms of referencing it (laughs) the first wide receiver i'm gonna go with judy at minus 105 on my bookie and i also did judy to the new york jets over on bavada at plus 230 Ooh, that's a nice one yeah i could see that I mean, they just they just lost Robbie Anderson. They're in dire need. I don't think Rashad Perriman is going to, um, you know, fill the uh, the need there at wide receiver one. I could absolutely see um, Jerry Judy going to the Jets and also being the first pick. I like I like loading up on both of those. Yeah, um, Jets. I mean, they need to get Sam Darnold going, and they either need to invest in one of these offensive tackles that slips down the board, or they just sit where they are and get the best receiver in Judy. I think it's a really good bet there at plus two thirty odds. I did come up with a second bet just for fun if we want to yeah, do something new. Uh, Cole Komet, tight end, over 44.5 in terms of his draft selection. So that's in 12 plus round. I'm sorry, in the second round, 12 selections in. Um, so that's um, it's interesting. I'm a big Notre Dame guy. And I, you know, for two or three years, I've watched Komet and, uh, and Chase Claypool. And I feel like the hype on both of them is a little bit more than warranted. And I was really the first tight end off the board was a bet that I was looking at. And right now Cole Komet is minus 300 to be the first tight end taken, uh, regardless of where he's taken, whether that's in the middle of the second round or the middle of the third round or whatever. But then you have, you know, Troutman, Albert O, uh, kid out of FAU. What's his name? Uh, Bryant. Yeah, yeah, Hunter Bryan, I believe his name is. I feel like, and and the odds on those guys, I don't have them on me at the, like on paper right now, but they're like six to one, nine to one, uh, 12 to one. So I think there's there's definitely some value in um, Cole Komet not being the first tight end off the board, which kind of coincides with your your, uh, bet there that you think he will not go. yeah, the over 44.5. Yeah, yeah. So I think no tight end in the first is a minus 600 bet. I think that's almost like a lock. Uh, yeah. And the odds are nowhere near good enough to try to take anything there. Um, but there's just like no tight end needy teams in the first 12 picks in round two. And yeah. the odds here, it's minus 170 on this. I'm not crazy about it. So I try to shop it around. But I do think he goes over that 44.5 mark. Yeah, so that's definitely something that I will be uh, weighing in on, taking a look at throughout the rest of the month of April. Okay, so last fantasy question I have for you, which I've asked everybody that's been on this series to this point, and that is, if someone told you that you could not read uh, any, uh, excuse me, if someone told you you couldn't research on your own, 
whose content would you turn to, um, whether it be in DFS or Dynasty or whatever, uh, in order to uh, help you set lineups in all the different formats that you play? Oh man, there are so many great people putting out fantastic content these days. Uh, I love the work that our guys at Fantasy Guru are doing on the NFL front with Jeff Manns, Russell Clay, Armando Marsal. I heard Ben Cummins on your last podcast say he described like a Mount Rushmore of fantasy analysts. I'm going to yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. off that. And I'm going to go with Sean Siegel, Rich Rebar, Scott Barrett, and Elliot Christ. Nice. Uh, between those four guys, I know I'd be in a good position for best ball, dynasty, redraft, DFS. Yeah, I mean, Sean Siegel, I feel like I've kind of fallen off with with um, reading his stuff. I, but he was like one of the guys that, man, I would open up uh, his stuff every week. Uh, but I've, I, since I've kind of uh, transitioned into DFS only and, you know, best ball March through July, March through August, I kind of shied away from his stuff. But yeah, he was he was awesome. I loved uh, all of his stuff. Absolutely. I mean, he's less active on Twitter these days, but yeah. he's still doing like a weekly, it might be weekly or monthly, uh, Best Ball 10 workshop lessons. And those are fantastic points where you can pull off some great nuggets and help translate those to actual uh, winning results in terms of your Best Ball portfolio. So highly recommend that. Awesome. So Tyler is a Philly kid. Grew up in Harrisburg, uh, was a Drexel is a Drexel grad lived in Philly for uh, a good chunk of his life. So obviously what am I going to pick his brain on Philly cheesesteaks? Give me your, your top Philly cheesesteak there, Tyler. Okay. I'm going to give you a little story here. Cause I, I've okay. had yeah. quite, quite the run in with all of this. Like during my days in college, I do community service by working at a Tony Luke stand in okay. the Lincoln financial field where the Eagles play. So I have a lot of experience there. I worked with Tony Luke himself. Um, Delisandras, we'd go there almost maybe like once a month after doing community service in college. And Drexel was a five-year program that I was involved in. So did a lot of cheesesteaks and a lot of community service. Uh, we also did gyms and Ishka Bibbles once a year during like a city scavenger hunt. And then I left for DC after college for like five years, then came back and lived in Philly for another three years. And during that period, I lived two blocks away from Pat's and Gino's. Nice. Um, I'm bearing the lead here, but the answer is Steve's Prince of Steaks. Okay. They pour melted American cheese on it, sliced ribeye, not chopped, uh, grilled onions. It's just elite product, and they have a few shops, so there's plenty of places to get it. It's just hands down my favorite. That sounds like a roast beef sandwich, not a cheesesteak. <laughs> no, no, it's it's it qualifies under steaks. So how how do you like the how do you like your your steaks with American and with or without onions? What are we going with? Uh, American and with onions. Okay. So I'm a, I like the full Philly uh, with onions and the whiz. Um, and I, I know you, you said you listened to Ben and I feel like, I, I feel like I, I sound like, um, you know, mainstreamer here recommending Pat's and Geno's, but I would always tell someone if they're only going to go to Philly once and get one to just take in that the ambiance of you know being down in that in that neck of the woods and like seeing the lines in the competing market down there for sure but Absolutely. i know you did, you did hear me say that delisandro's uh on the main drag there and maniunk is my favorite and man I, if i had one one we call them up here in the northeast section of pennsylvania hoagies not subs not grinders <laughs> not heroes we call them hoagies. If I had one hoagie to eat for the rest of my life, it would be 
Adelisandro's cheesesteak, and that is without question. As a fantastic pick, and I'll piggyback on your comment of getting the original when you're at Pat's and Gino's, and when I'm there, I do do a whiz wit just because you got to try the uh, the whiz. It's not your typical canned whiz that's kind of gross. Uh, it, it probably right, yeah. is. I'll, I'm probably hyping it up too much. <laughs> but no, it, it does. It, like, yeah, it's it better. Taste like, yeah, it doesn't taste like you popped the red lid off like a Fritos cheese whiz can and, and poured it on. There is like, right. you know, it's it's the consistency is there. It almost tastes like they melted a, a block of cheddar or something. It does taste a little bit better than, than what people that listening would probably think of cheese mm-hmm. whiz is. Yeah, we got to hype up the whiz. I mean, there's yeah, just so absolutely. many negative connotations with it. And and when you're there in line, I remember the first time I was ever there, I was, I think it was in high school. We went and we stopped right before we went to an Eagles game. Uh, it's almost reminiscent of uh, being ner- how nervous Jerry and Elaine and, and George were in line for the soup Nazi. I, I don't, they're nice guys and everything. And I don't think there's any reason to be nervous, but like you're supposed to say a certain um, phrase however you want it like you don't pull up and say uh yeah give me the give me the cheese steak and uh yeah throw a couple onions on there you have to say a couple you have to say the one phrase and then move along and yep. um, it is it is a little intimidating your first go around oh absolutely yeah especially yeah. considering the lines there and you see this big board that says you must order it this way and the very bottom says if you order incorrectly just go back to the back of the line and try again <laughs> yeah cash only you have to respect the the grind there of yep. Of, uh, you know, not reporting half your sales and all that stuff. Um, so uh, moving on from Philly cheesesteaks, but continuing with uh, the eating portion, which like food is, food, I, my life revolves around food. And um, most of the time I it's clean food that I'm eating. But how have or how has your, your COVID, like how's the last month of this uh, shelter in place been for you? Are you, are you surviving or are you like gaining 20 pounds? Uh, how are you staying sane? No, I'm doing the opposite. I'm actually uh, on the way down in terms of fitness, uh, losing weight and doing well there. I'm cooking at home all the time now out of necessity. Uh, I told right. you that I moved out of Philly prior to us recording last summer. Um, but the biggest thing about moving away from Philly was deleting the Grubhub app. No longer having that instant source of food at my fingertips. Can't just order cheesesteaks, burgers, pizzas on a whim. Um, So I've been eating eating pretty clean ever since then. Uh, A lot of grilled chicken. Uh, One thing I've learned during this COVID time is I am now a big Brussels sprouts guy. Oh, I love Uh, Brussels sprouts. Yeah. It's a food that I had kind of avoided for most of my life just because I think I didn't like it when I was like six years old. And I decided at six years old, I'd never eat it again. And then, then I was over at a friend's house uh, right before all this stuff happened. And she made the most awesome Brussels sprouts that I've ever had. And uh, I've been hooked ever since. I've been like, every time we go to the grocery store, we're getting three or four bags of one. And it's become a staple of our uh, go-to menu now. Yeah, because I'm kind of lazy with, um, you know, preparing actual food. And my wife usually does the cooking. If I'm doing Brussels sprouts, I usually get like the bird's eye uh, microwavable bag, probably lots of different w- radio waves going into my body that I don't need, but um, salt, pepper, microwave the bag, and I, Brussels sprouts get a bad rap, man. They're one of the be- better tasting vegetables there are, I think. Way way better than like peas or green beans, for sure. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. You said it there, salt, pepper is all you really need. A little balsamic yeah. if you want it. Um, it. It's fantastic, though. Absolutely. Okay, so before we get out of here, Tyler, I want to run you down the the gauntlet. Um, this is like a little bit of an either or. Most guys got, um, you know, like 
cake or pie, Pepsi or Coke. Uh, that's what the last two episodes were. But since we talked a lot about uh, the draft on this episode, I want to uh, kind of hit some of the weird novelty props that there are uh, going on at some of the books. Are you ready to go before we get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So will a team, yes or no, have technical difficulties in round one? No. Over, under, most people shown in the same room, 9.5. I'm going to go with over because people are still idiots and they're going to be ignoring the social distancing thing. All right. Yes or no, will a draftee be shown drinking beer? No. Yes or no, will a draftee be shown popping champagne? No. Over, under, 3.5 dogs shown during round one. That was a pretty good line. I'm going to go with under just because I think too many people will be around and it'll get the dogs all riled up. Uh, they won't be able to sit still and be in the camera shot. Yeah, I agree. I think um, a lot of times dogs just don't want to even be uh, amongst uh, the crowd if it's all, you know, almost like thunder when they hear all the rumbling and the noise, they, they kind of go away from it. Over mm-hmm. under. That was way too much uh, analysis on dogs <laughs> petting prep. Over, over under cats shown during round 1.5. Uh, under cats are even more skittish yeah oh, yeah they'll be under the bed and uh, upstairs for sure and this is the last one i think there's a lot of value here let me hear what you think who will joe burrow embrace first after being selected mom one plus 125 dad plus 250 girlfriend plus 300 sibling plus 700 friend plus 700 i'm imagining picturing this and the camera angle is straight on the couch with burrow sitting next to his girlfriend that's the first hug plus 300 great yeah. odds there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That, that's exactly what I was going to say. Three to one. He, a girlfriend, 100% undoubtedly is going to be sitting right next to him. And I don't know if that's who he's going to embrace, but I think the proximity there makes three to one plus 300 a great bet. Absolutely. hundred percent on board there. Tyler, it was uh, a very, very fun podcast. Uh, I'm glad that you had the time to stop by. I appreciate it. Uh, I will make sure to check out all your stuff on Fantasy Guru and Elite Fantasy. Uh, I hope you stay safe and healthy for the rest of this shelter-in-place COVID catastrophe. See you later. All I see is signs. All I see is dollar signs.